Welcome to Coach House Talks. Look on your news channels today. The number of people currently coming out of Ukraine roughly equates to the number of people that were moving out of Egypt in the Exodus. In fact, I saw one of the news channels this, this week calling it the Exodus from Ukraine. So, any populace of this size, as we see on the news today, needs organisation. That's why Steve Potts is taking aid and things like that. They need organisation. They need rules in place in order to maintain its health and civility. Especially so when in the times of Exodus, those people are set aside to show a different standard and a different way of living, a holy way of living designed to reflect God's goodness to them. And here's the important bit. So that the others around, so that the nations around would be jealous and would desire God for themselves. Now we've already seen as we've gone through Genesis that God uses covenants to establish relationships with his people. We saw it with Adam, saw it with Noah, and then we saw it with Abraham. And in Exodus we see another covenant made with Moses. And Israel. What's important to establish here is that this covenant does not replace the covenant made with Abraham, which established God's chosen nation, Israel. What this covenant with Moses does is determine how that life will look. So rather than the promise to bless the nations of the world through Abraham, what we have in Exodus is a covenant that sets out the rules for this relationship. It expressly prepares the way, okay, and here's the good bit. It expressly prepares the way for God to come down and dwell amongst his people intimately again. Something that's not been experienced since the fall when Adam and Eve previously walked in the garden with God. Even the revealing of God's name, I am shows the context of God drawing close to his people. I have a name. I have an identity before you. And now I am roughly translates in Hebrew to Yahweh. And this becomes so holy to the Israelites that they dare not even utter it aloud. So therefore, whenever you see in your Bibles, when you're reading the Bible, the words Lord in capitals, it's expressly revealing that underneath this word Lord is the term Yahweh or I am. And we'll revisit this later as we come to the table. But in the meantime, I told you that we show God's character, but it also shows man's heart. We don't need any further indication of men's of man's inclination to disobey, that while Moses was on top of Mount Sinai getting his tablets, I don't know what was wrong with him, but he was getting his tablets, Aaron was at the foot of the mountain making a golden calf to worship. I mean, how does that happen? This most intimate of relationships with God, and Aaron, the guy that's been specifically set apart to be Moses' side man, is there whilst they make a golden calf to worship. The people obviously need some useful rules 
to help guide them. And some discipline to help them focus. Have you ever received a recall letter for a product? I've had several with cars over the years. It lets us know that a problem has been discovered with the item we own. It puts us on notice. Basically what it says is, we're telling you that there's a problem, and now it's your responsibility. It shifts the responsibility and the onus to us. If we choose to do nothing with that notice, then the responsibility is ours alone. Don't go crying back to the manufacturer that, hey, my product's failed, because they've told you it's going to. Sometimes ignoring such a notice is no big deal. At other times, it can mean the difference between life and death. If you've got a certain part in your car that needs replacing, you better replace it quick, or your car might go off the road and cause serious damage. In much the same way, all humanity, all of us, have been put on notice that we are fatally flawed. All of us. That's what God's law, that's what God's revealing to us. That we are all fatally flawed. Due not to a manufacturer's defect or a manufacturer's problem, but to our sin. And the consequences of ignoring these of this, the, it, the implications of this, are dire and eternal. So it's not a manufacturer's problem. It's a problem that we've taken on board ourselves. But we've been put on notice by God's character and God's law and God's writing to us that go, this is my standard and this is where you have taken yourselves, guys. There's a massive gulf between us. But I want to dwell with you. So how do I make that happen? So, how can we even blame God when he disciplines us? It's, we get what we deserve. But in reality, discipline and rules are designed to reveal God's love and care for us, his people. A question that I was asked recently is, why does God condone killing people? Now, especially written about in the Old Testament, but specifically the horrific killing of children, as happened with the killing of the Egyptian firstborn? Well, the answer is intertwined with our understanding of one of the central themes of Exodus, Passover. I think we're familiar with the practice of dealing with people as they deal with us. We like to say, don't we, if you want somebody to tr treat you nicely, treat them nicely first, and they'll treat you with respect if you show them respect. Treat someone in a way that you would like to be treated. Well, perhaps we need to have this in mind as we delve into the events surrounding the Passover and the slaughter of these firstborn. We should also remember, before we even set off there, that it was Pharaoh who set out to make the Israelites' life a misery. Exodus 1 Verses 13, verse 13 and the first part of verse 14 says, So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. Imagine being worked without mercy. No mercy at all. I'm flagging. I can't stand up. I don't care. I'm thirsty. I don't care. I'm hungry. Don't care. Do the work. Build me my pyramid. They made their lives bitter. And Moses, Moses was God's answer to the Israelites as they cried out for rescue from this situation. And he 
let us not forget, was born into a period of genocide. Okay, so when we think, oh, well, you know, God's killing people, Moses was born in a period of genocide. Pharaoh was killing all of the Israelite boys. He's so scared of the Israelite number that he takes things into his own hands and whilst he's working them to the bone and they still continue and they can still continue growing, he says, right, okay, let's, let's cut them off at source. Let's kill all of the Israelite newborn males, the title bearers, those that have any substance. Let's kill them. But God brought about his rescue plan through Moses despite this. Because he is Lord of all situations. Now we're probably familiar with the plagues that were brought upon Egypt as Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites flee from the captivity that it enforced upon them. I think it's very helpful for us to look at it like this. Moses, in his demands of Pharaoh at God's request, started way down low. Way down low. His first plague, what? Turning the Nile to blood, or the, the Nile to, yeah, the, turning the waters to, to blood. He started way down low, turning the drinking water horrid. Followed by frogs, gnats, flies. I'm looking to see if Jessie's here. Oh, she is. Oh, dear. Sorry, Jessie, I apologise. If you've had a holiday in Scotland you will know that they are irritable, but survivable. Irritable, but survivable. But with each opportunity to let my people go, Moses said no. And the consequences got worse. They culminated in the final warning, one that would elevate God's judgment in a way that was guaranteed pierce Pharaoh's heart, killing his firstborn, his title bearers. In other words, the consequences that God used to get his attention are where his heart was already at. Let's remind ourselves one of the promises that God made to the nations of the world through Abraham in Genesis 12, one of the first covenants. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. I pretty much think that Pharaoh was treating the Israelites with contempt, don't you? God is only being consistent with his own character and promises. I'm sure when we know we're doing things wrong, when we, are, when we know we've taken ourselves into a place where we're doing things that we know God doesn't want us to do, that God elevates things to get our attention. I've said to people, that, you know, we don't just go to there in our sin. I'm off script, sorry. We don't just go there in our sin. We start here. But God's there in that, and he's saying, please don't go any further. Please don't step over the line that you're just drawing out in your own mind. But we go, no, I'll just, I'm there. So God comes again and says, don't go any further. No, I'm going there. Don't go any further. Going there. Don't go any further. And we are heading towards where we want to go. 
all the time. And God's at every step saying, I'm giving you opportunity to stop. I'm giving you opportunity to turn around. I'm giving you opportunity to repent and say sorry, and we start again. Everything, oh, sorry, let me just. So God moves against Pharaoh with 10 judgments that we know well, the plagues. Now, we usually reference these occurrences as plagues, but the closest word to the original Hebrew is blow or strike, as in three strikes and you're out. Okay, so it's going up in consequence every time. Everything makes sense when you see the proper perspective. God always gives us opportunity to turn back to him and receive his forgiveness. Now, many years ago, you're wondering what that's about. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, uh, Jamie. Many years ago, Josh threatened to leave home, like all kids do, okay? We all think we know better. I've done it with my mum, you know, and my dad. I know better. You don't love me. I can make my own way in this world. Let me go. Many years ago, Josh threatened to leave home. He cited the reason as being that we didn't love him. Mum and dad, you don't love me, so I'm going. I'm going to find people who do. I'm going to make my own way. And I remember being hurt by that. And it generated a response from me. Go then. I allowed him to pack his bag and make himself ready to carry out his threat to leave. Before he did so, now you're, all, you're, you're all looking at this now thinking, well, I know where this is going. Before he did so, I asked him, who's bought you that bag that you've just packed all your clothes in? And he sheepishly looked at me and said, well, you did. I said, you better give me back then, because we don't love you. So he reluctantly gave us the bag back and kept his clothes under his arm and started heading towards the door. And before you go out the door, who bought you those clothes you've got under your arm? Ah, uh, you did, he reluctantly replied. You better give them back to us then because we don't love you. So he gave us back the clothes. So he was walking out the door. I think you know where this is going. Um, who bought you those clothes you're wearing? It's funny, but it wasn't funny at the time, I tell you. He says, um... <laughs> You did, he said, very reluctantly now when you knew where this was going. Well, you better return them to us then, because we don't love you. And you keep telling us we don't love you, so you better give back anything that shows us that we do. So reluctantly, he took his clothes off. So in order to maintain his dignity, I allowed him his underwear. Oh, I sound like a bad parent here, don't I? So Josh left the house in his underpants. And he walked to the end of the street where he sat down and contemplated his situation. We closed the door, because you have to. It wasn't long before there was a knock on the door. And the familiar, I'm hungry, what's for tea? Heralded his return to the love that's always been there for him. See what I'm saying? 
God gives us every chance and every opportunity to turn around and say we're sorry and come back to him before the consequences go up and up and up. And every time we come back to him, God embraces us with his love and his care. Every increasing turn of the screw was in order to make Josh realize the extent of our provision to him and our care and our love that has been shown to him. And God does the same with us. He even does the same with his enemies. He did the same with Pharaoh. Let my people go. No harm will come to you if you let my people go. No. And it ramped up and it ramped up and it ramped up and it got to the point where Pharaoh's heart was already placed. He'd already killed and made the order to kill Israelite boys. I'm not surprised God went to the same place to get his attention. You see, when we apply the correct perspective, we should realize we have nothing apart from God. He has showered us with love. He's showered us with protection and provision. And how do we treat him in return? Well, I'll leave you to honestly contemplate that question. Which brings us to the Passover. See, most of the plagues required no action from the Israelites as they were protected by God himself. If you read the other um, plagues, you'll see that the, the plague of flies or the plague of gnats and the plague of livestock where the Jews were living in Gershon was protected and it didn't come upon that place. So the Israelites had some protection from the other plagues. However, plague 10 is different. Plague 10, they have to do something very, very specific to be protected. The whole point of all of this was to show God's power and preservation of his people to Pharaoh. So the nine plagues that went before that, it's saying to Pharaoh, look, all these plagues are going to come, up, come upon you, but my people are going to be fine. My people will be safe from this. My people, the people I love, my Israelites, my chosen people, they're not going to come under this. They will be protected. Their livestock will still be standing when all of yours have died. However, the tenth plague, I don't know why I did that, so I'll be the ninth The tenth plague was somewhat different. There were specific instructions given to the Israelites so that they too would not come under the judgment of God. You see, this is worth looking at and it's covered in chapter 12 of Exodus. So if you've got time to look at chapter 12, have a look at it. Because all of the firstborn throughout Egypt were going to be taken out that night. All unless you've taken the provision that God gives you to do. And these instructions that God gave to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, would form the basis of an annual celebration that would take place on the 14th day of the first month of the year. Now, they don't have calendars like us, so the Hebrew calendar is on first moons and, and various things like that. So the first month of the year for the Hebrews is actually March, April, which is Nisan. Uh, so that's, that's the first, first uh, month. And so on the 14th of this month, they were to perform and have this annual celebration. And the instructions to observe revolve around the sacrifice of a lamb, the daubing of its blood 
on the doorposts and the lintels of the front door where that lamb is eaten. In other words, the instructions to the Israelite households was to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, examine it for four days to make sure that it's got no blemish, and then sacrifice it, and then take its blood and daub it on the doorposts of your house. Which signifies that the angel of the Lord will pass over your house when it sees the sign of the Lord's protection that you've taken what he's asked you to do and he will pass over and not bring judgment to the households within. This blood would act as a sign of protection from God's judgment and his wrath would pass over them. What is central to our thinking here is that both Egyptian and Israelite firstborn were under the curse of death. The Israelites were not saved because they were better than the Egyptians. Because if you think about it, all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of God's glory. So why would God elevate one above the other? He doesn't. He just says, I'm going to give you a provision that will save you. They weren't saved because they were better than the Egyptians. They're only because they've been covered by the blood of that sacrificed lamb. It was only by the substitution of the lamb's blood that the Israelites could have salvation and judgment would pass over them. And it was this celebration that occurred during Jesus' death on the cross. The Gospel of John relies heavily on drawing the reader's attention to the events in Exodus to prove Jesus' authenticity and to prove to us that God's plan of rescue would involve the sacrifice of Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb to put into operation the rescue plan for all of creation. For example, John draws our attention to something quite marked in John 19, verse 31 to 33, concerning Jesus' death on the cross. He furnishes us with these details. It was a day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day. So Jesus and the two that were crucified with him are on the cross. They are, they've been hanging out there. They've been crucified. But it now was the day of preparation. The Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath. And a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So John's already keeps drawing our attention to this Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came out and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. Now there's a direct correlation here to the Jewish observance of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, verse 46, which tells us that each Passover lamb must be eaten in one house, because anyone in that house is going to be protected by the blood. Do not carry any of its meat outside, and do not break any of its bones. You see what John's doing? John is really keen for us to directly link the blood of Jesus with the saving blood daubed on the doorposts. Judgment passes over, just as wrath passes over us who have claimed the covering of Jesus' blood. 
we should be reminded that Jesus was eager to eat the Passover meal with his disciples before his suffering began. And the significance should not be lost on us. Jesus entered Jerusalem not to celebrate Passover, but to become our Passover. To become our Passover lamb. God's plans from beginning to end are so intimate in their detail that I find it, I'm just nonplussed with people who can't see the connections. And then as Jesus was taking this Passover meal in front of his, day, in front of his disciples and with his disciples, who would understand all of the significant aspects of this celebration, given that they've celebrated it every year. And Jesus spoke about his substitutionary work. Propitiation, a word that's not often said nowadays. This powerful word is one that we should all grasp. We should all take hold of it and get its meaning and know its meaning. Because a simple definition is this. Turning away wrath with an offering. Turning away wrath with an offering. That blood over the doorpost turned away wrath because of the offering. Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf. Why? To turn away wrath from us. From you and from me. Jesus did it, turning away wrath with an offering. Jesus stood in our place as our substitute offering. And the Jews would have been looking at this and understanding the Passover, understanding all of the rules, and it would be blowing their minds. Or you'd like to think it would. Because even they didn't get it. And even today, lots don't get it. See, God's righteousness demands that the guilty party should be offered up for punishment. You remember in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, when somebody's done something wrong, they say, bring out the wrongdoer. Let us punish the wrongdoer. Yet Jesus stood in our place and said, Father, I'll bear this punishment instead. Jesus absorbs the hammer blow of justice on our behalf. That's why our act of communion is so important to us. We celebrate our escape from wrath because of Jesus' obedience. As we share together, let us be aware of the significance of God's widening plan to bring us into the eternal promise of rescue and blessing. Just as the Passover instructions in Exodus prepared the way for God to come down and dwell with his people in the tabernacle, so it is that Jesus' sacrifice provides the way for our dwelling with God to be restored. God wants to intimately come and dwell with his people. We might not feel that sometimes. We might not feel like that every day. But God, every single day, wants to intimately dwell with those that are called to him, those that are taken on the blood, those that are under his grace. You see, God's big picture is to act 
in grace towards us to give us the opportunity to turn to him. But that coin must have another side. It must have a consequence for not taking that grace. And that other side is God's justice. Because God tells us throughout his word that he will act against unrighteousness. And it's almost like not having the blood daubed on your doorpost. God will act against the unrighteous, but he will act in grace towards those that have taken on the provision that he has given to us. We have the covering of Jesus' blood to avert the wrath, but it's dependent on our personal decision to accept the sacrifice of God's own son, the perfect Passover lamb. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.